reading today is from Colossians 2, verses 6 through 15. Therefore, as you receive Jesus, Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to, op- put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is the word of God. When I was about 10 years old, we lived actually in the territory of Guam. Any of you ever been to Guam? I didn't think so. Any of you ever heard of Guam? Yeah, any of you know where Guam is, kind of? Yeah, probably most of you know it's somewhere out there. It's like go to Hawaii and you're halfway there. You know, go to, uh, you know, Hong Kong and you went a little too far. All right, that's kind of how it is. Uh, and uh, so I lived there for a whole year when I was uh, 10 years old. And it was a great experience for our family. My sister was only a couple of years old. I was about 10, and my two brothers were a year or, or so behind me. And it was really a fantastic experience. Had a few, huge influence on my life, on the future course of my life. But that's a story for uh, another time. You know, the, that 10 years old time period, if you think about it, is a very significant time in everyone's personal development. And that's where I was and I was 10 years old, or 11. Before we returned to the States, we took a tour of the Orient, visiting the Philippines and Taiwan and Hong Kong, and I have great memories of of that trip, as well as another trip we took through the Marianas Islands, seeing some of the primitive cultures just before we came back via Hawaii here to uh, the mainland. And uh, yeah, while I was in Hong Kong, for example, I made my first ever significant purchase. I had saved up money, and I bought a camera uh, which I have still today, an Olympus pen, small half-frame camera. Any of you guys who are fan- camera people, you know kind of a cool little camera that that is. It's really a great camera, and I still have it today. And I remember while we were in Hong Kong as well, staying on the 13th floor of a hotel when a typhoon was going on. I think that's the, the you know the, the name for cyclones out here, but typhoon out there. And my dad said when we were living when we were up there, he said, you know, in America they don't have 13th floors. Do you know that's True? That's when I learned that. And I, I checked it out this week. 85, uh, elevator company says that 85% of all hotels in America do not have a 13th floor, which I don't know how they skip it, but somehow, I don't know why staying on the 14th floor when it's really the 13th floor doesn't seem, you know, but anyway, that's a story for another time. Things that you learn when you're 10 years old that you never forget. And I remember being, well, this massive storm and sitting here looking out under Hong Kong and seeing the junks go by and all the stuff going on and just having a great time feeling very safe while we're on this superstitiously bad floor, the 13th floor there in Hong Kong. But I have one memory which really was not very pleasant. It's not a really big memory, but it's kind of an unpleasant memory for me. We had gone into the Philippines 
I think that was Philippines. And we had gotten to the hotel late at night, and we were uh, we had uh, gotten a taxi, and we were in this taxi, and I just remember a lot of angst in my family in that taxi because my dad seemed to have been convinced that the taxi driver was taking on us, us on a circuitous route to find our destination. And I don't know if it was a big deal or not, but somehow it wedged itself into my spirit and psyche. And I still feel a little bit nervous when I'm in a big city and I have to hail a taxi. Can you identify with that? You know, we eventually arrived safely and it was no big problem, but I remember being anxious for my dad and frustrated that we were at the mercy of a potentially dishonest guy. Now, maybe you've experienced something like that when you're, tra- any of you experienced something like that? You're just not sure? Yeah, you know. Um, <laughs> if you know that feeling, you know something of the dilemma that the Colossian believers faced as they were trying to navigate their way through a brand new landscape. They didn't move into a new town, but they had become new people. They had a different way of looking at life. And they were living in this town where all the old ways made sense, but for them, Jesus had made a difference, and they didn't know who to trust, where to go, who to rely on, and there were some people that were coming in as guides who were trying to say, well, this is the way to do it. And so the Apostle Paul, in this letter which we have been studying for the last couple of months and will continue to study until about Easter time this year, This little letter, he wrote to that small gathering believers, very probably less people than are sitting here today were the original recipients of that letter. They were trying to navigate their way through life with their newfound faith in Jesus. How did that connect to who they were? And when no one else around them seemed to think that way, uh, that, that Jesus was an important person to follow, the Apostle Paul knew the dangerous place that they were in, and he wrote this letter to give to them some guidance. And so now we're getting to the very meat of this letter, the section which Cheryl read for us a little bit earlier today. And as we look at this text, we will see that Paul wants to give to them a serious warning. He wants to offer to them a trustworthy guide, and he wants to suggest to them a triumphant life to live. So let's look at these three, this text under these three headings today. A serious warning to heed, a trustworthy guide to follow, and a triumphant life to live. And if you're taking notes, and of course the, the text is also printed on the back, there's a place that, that you can do it. First of all, a serious warning to heed. He says in that eighth verse, where we're beginning our talk this morning, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. He's saying to them, make sure that you don't get in the wrong taxi. Make sure you don't listen to the wrong voices. Don't pay attention to some of those voices. And there's a serious warning that he's giving to them. You see, the truth is, we, like those Colossian believers, live every day in a place where we need a trusted guide. We've never gone this way before. I've never been almost 54 before. I've never had two married children before. I've never gone through some of this stuff, right? We don't know the way. We need a good guide. This place 
<laughs> we need a trusted guide for this place we call earth. It's a familiar place to us like Colossae was to those Colossian believers. But there are a lot of things for us that we need guidance for. There are a lot of things we face in life for which we could use some wise counsel. It can be in the smaller things, but how do I, you know, live in, on the marketplace? How do I work with, my, live next to my neighbor? How do I go about my job? And in the rest of this book, the Apostle Paul tries to help them to see what are the implications that their faith in Christ have for their day-to-day lives. What does it mean to live like new creation in the midst of the world that they see? You see, we're in that place too. It involves the day, the dayness of our lives, but also involves the fundamental and ultimate questions of our lives. For example, why are we here? Is human life a cosmic accident? Or is there a larger purpose to our existence? And if there is a larger purpose, is there a larger purposer who makes like life have some kind of larger purpose? And for that matter, how did this world get here? Did it arrive by chance? Or is there a cosmic designer, a personal intelligence behind the universe? These are real questions. We have to ask these questions. And while we're thinking about it, is there such a thing as right and wrong? Are there right behaviors and wrong behaviors? And is this just up to the, you know, are things right just because more people vote them to be right? Does that make them right? You see, that's our culture we live in, isn't it? If the government says it's right, it must be right, right? Who of us wants the government deciding what's what right and wrong for us? But on the other hand, who of us wants every individual just deciding what's right and wrong for them? I can take what you have because I can do it, and therefore I can get away with it. Was that the way you Is there a larger moral ought to the universe? And if so, how did it get here? And if there's a larger moral ought, is there a larger moral otter? <laughs> Deference to my wife, who has an otter tattooed on her ankle. A little too much information, I can tell. You know, why is it? And if there is a larger ought a moral right and wrong? These are the big questions that we, they're right in front of us all the time. We can't help but deal with them. If there is a larger purpose and a larger right and wrong, why is it that we and others habitually choose to do against what we ourselves believe to be right? Forget about a cosmic law out there. How many of us would say, I always live in line with my best, my best and highest interests? None of us would say that. We all know that we fall short of our own standards, much less the Bibles or God's. Why do we do that? That doesn't make any sense. That's not reasonable, is it? Well, we could go on, of course. But the truth is that these questions and others like them are of critical importance to our lives. Without good answers to these questions, we are as lost as my family felt in the middle of Manila. (laughs) The thriller in Manila, wasn't so much fun trying to find our way. Maybe, we might say parenthetically, this is why so much of our American culture and interest focuses on its time on amusements such as shopping and, forgive me, Green Bay, sports. <laughs> you know, we don't want to face the ultimate questions of life. We don't want to think about what really matters. 
We just sort of make our way through. Well, what we need, of course, is a trusted guide. Someone who can help us navigate the myriad of questions, big and small, which we face at every turn in our road. For Christians, that guide is Jesus called Messiah. Jesus the Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our guide if you're a Christian. And the guidebook we follow is the Scriptures, the living, the written Word of God. He is the living Word of God. <laughs> Creation speaks the Word of God, and we have the written Word of God. That's our guide. That's what Christians believe. But we have to ask ourselves this question. In these enlightened days, is it really necessary to look to an ancient book, to believe in some guy who lived a common life in first century Palestine? Does the world really revolve around that person? Hasn't the world changed so dramatically that those guidebooks need to be updated? And shouldn't we be? Well, see, this is why we're in the same position as those Colossian believers. We, too, have to figure out what it means to follow Jesus in this day. Haven't we evolved to the point where we no longer need an ancient text such as the Bible to tell us what is right and wrong? After all, doesn't the Bible promote such things as racism, violence against women, and shudder, the greatest of all sins, intolerance? <laughs> doesn't the Bible promote these things? Well, the short answer to these questions is no, it does not. But that's the topic for another time. Come back another week and we'll talk about it. The Bible is actually the best document against racism, the best document in favor of equal rights for women, the best document to teach us to be tolerant to those with whom we have disagreements. The Bible is the best document for that, but we'll talk about that another time. And aren't there other equally valid guides? Does it really matter? I after all, there's lots of taxis on the road. How dare you say Jesus is the taxi driver you should trust, you see? Yeah. I mean, there are many spiritual guides, who, um, you know, that can give us answers to the ultimate questions of life. Uh, for, for example, the spiritual guides of the Quran of Islam and its five pillars, or the Vedas and the Upanishads of Hinduism, or the Eightfold Path of Buddhism, or the, the Book of Mormon of the Latter-day Saints, and, oh, many more spiritual guides. Uh, you know, aren't they all kind of the same? Isn't it wrong to think, well, this is the guide I've chosen to follow? I know I'm asking hard questions, but after all, it's only one life we live. We have to ask the real questions, don't we? Yeah. Or maybe we should dispense with religious systems altogether and rely simply on science and reason to guide us, you know? Perhaps given enough time, we can solve the world's problems and answer the ultimate questions of life, you know? We don't need those ancient philosophies. We just, you know, we'll figure it out, right? And yet, after two world wars... <laughs> and a century of violence, and knowing that much of it rested squarely on the secular ideology of Marx and Nietzsche, we have to ask ourselves, well, maybe evil is not consigned to religious people. Maybe there's other kinds of evil in the world as well. You know, we have not made better, become better people, nor have these ideologies given us great questions, the ultimate, great answers to the ultimate questions of our lives. No, I'm afraid science and reason may provide better 
more comfortable means of transportation, but they will not solve the ultimate problem. We don't know where we're going, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, our situation, as I said, is much like that of those Colossian believers in this letter we're studying. They had been introduced to the person of Jesus. They had been told that the world was not here by chance, but by divine design. They had been told that Jesus himself was the agent of creation, that Jesus himself made us, and he loved us enough to give us freedom, which we use to turn our backs on God and to bring brokenness into the world. But Jesus clothed himself in human flesh to rescue us, to redeem us, and to give to us back the life he had created us to live. They had a faith in Jesus that he had brought new life into them. These early believers embraced this story. They responded in faith to this gospel, the good news about Jesus. They trusted in Jesus and determined to let him be their guide for living a new life. But it was not easy for them, as it is not for us. Does respecting other faiths mean I have no fixed opinions of my own? Or is the fact, is the opinion that all faiths are equal itself an opinion, which can be used in an intolerant rate towards others who, don't, who do have an opinion? You see what I'm saying? We must be very careful. You see, it's okay to have a truth that we believe in, the gospel, for example, and then to be respectful towards others who believe differently. Yes. The apostle Paul wrote this letter to tell to them this very simple thing. Friends, Jesus is all you need. The one who gave his life for you wants to live his life through you. He wants to be your guide. You can trust him. Do not be misled. Don't add to Jesus every other philosophical system. Start with Jesus, and he will guide you. He will let you know why you're here, what you're about, what's wrong with the world, where this world is going, and he will teach you how to become the ultimate human being that he created you to be, that loving, self-sacrificing, giving, caring person who embraces everyone, whatever their creed or race or or, 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 or whatever, welcoming others as Jesus himself welcomed you. Jesus is, our second point, a trustworthy guide to follow. The Apostle Paul says, Therefore, verse 6 and 7 and verse 9 and 10, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. He says Jesus is the trustworthy guide to follow. I want to say two things about this, Jesus, briefly, because we've been looking at these things quite a bit for the course of the last couple of months. If you've been following us, clearly the Apostle Paul's been trying to tell us who Jesus is, and here he tells us two things. Number one, Jesus is himself the fullness of God. Verse 9, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. I see the smoke's giving you guys a little bit of a welcoming present. Sorry about that. 
Yeah, it came, came my way, too, a couple of times as well. But I can move more easily than you can. But remember, you need to get up, get up and go, you know. Just don't go way far away. I'll feel kind of bad if you do that. Jesus is himself the fullness of God. This is the beautiful, profound, astounding mystery that Jesus wasn't just the one who points us to God, but he is himself God clothed in human skin. Other religious systems might say, there is the way, follow it. Jesus says, I am the way, follow me. He's either a megalomaniac or he's a liar or he's telling the truth. He's not a good man, if that's who he said and it was wrong, right? Others say, uh, there is the truth, follow it. Jesus says, I am the truth, follow me. Others say, there is, uh, the way that there is the life, go that way and you'll have life. These are the path to life, do that. Jesus says, I am the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. I am the resurrection and the life. These are crazy statements unless they're true. And we should never believe they're true unless we believe in the resurrection of Jesus. That's what validated his claims. The apostle Paul said to him, despite his whole life of Jewish monotheism, that God was separate, he came to believe because he had encountered a living Christ that God was tripersonal, that he was God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The resurrected Jesus is himself the fullness of God. The entire fullness of the Godhead dwells in Jesus. He wasn't just God-like. The essence of God dwells fully in him. The guy in the taxi is God. That's amazing. It's either true or it's not true. And if it's true, it should change your life. And if it's not true, don't waste your time honoring him. Yeah. There's no middle of the road when it comes to Jesus. Yeah. The Christian message that Jesus was the fullness of God. Come as a suffering servant, giving his life to the poor and the needy, laying down his life even for those who hated him. It's a beautiful story. Nothing else gives you that story. No one else is coming for you. But God came for you. Jesus came for you. Yes, Jesus is himself, the fullness of God. You can trust him. And the second thing that Paul says is in the next verse, and this is a mystery almost as profound. For in, verse 9, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Jesus is himself the fullness of God. And number two, and you have been filled in him who is head of all rule and authority. Jesus is the fullness of God, and you have been filled in him. What does that mean? Oh, my goodness. It means that when we place our trust in God, the life of God comes to live within us. We have the life of God 
within us. In the word fullness is in here twice. The fullness of God, and we have been filled. It's the same word used somewhat differently. How do I illustrate this for you? Here's the best way I can think of it. We love to go to the ocean every so often. In fact, actually, we love to go to the ocean very often. That's where our kids are. And we always got to go see the ocean. Have you ever stood on the on a, we used to live, when our daughter was born, we lived within, oh, 200 yards of the ocean. Oh, my goodness. We would take our little baby stroller down, park it on the way, sit and have lunch, and look at those waves. The ocean is immense. It is unfathomable. It is so large. And some of you have maybe been on the ocean. I remember the one time I was on a cruise ship in the ocean. You go out there, you wave to the land. And you wave to the land, and pretty soon the land goes away, and this huge boat seems rather small, <laughs> right? Everywhere you look, yes. You see, that's what we see about Jesus is the fullness of God. Now, let's imagine that you take a, uh, a mason jar, and you bring that up, and you put that mason jar in the ocean on the shore of it, and you fill the mason jar with the ocean, right? It only takes a moment, right? The ocean is filled up with the ocean. Did all of the ocean fit in it? No, not even close. But the jar was filled with the, filled with the ocean. That's what he's saying. You and I, we are not God, but we are able to experience whatever the capacity for God is within our own containers. You see, the fullness of God is uh, we have been made full. We are full of His fullness. So think about that when you think about the ocean. Fullness, I dip it in, and now I've got the ocean in my container. You see, God lives within me. Even so, if we are filled, we are filled with the fullness of Christ. He contains all the fullness of deity in His body, but we only receive a small amount as we dip ourselves in Him. We receive the fullness of Him. That's what has happened to us. It's a great mystery. When we, when we are full of Christ, filled up with Him, we will not be seduced by the empty philosophies of the world. To safeguard against falling away is simply to be full of Jesus. Does that make sense? To fill up with Jesus. And remember, when we're empty, as we often feel, our emptiness is not a means for shame, but it's a means of becoming full. You see? When we're empty, we can dip in the well. The Bible says, He who believes me will become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. Listen to this old little verse. Jesus is the path if any be misled. Jesus is the robe if any naked be. If by any chance to hunger, Jesus is my bread. If I may be a bondman, Jesus sets me free. If I be but weak, how strong is he? To dead men, life he is. To sick men, health. To blind men, sight. To the needy, wealth. Yes, my poverty is an opportunity to receive his Fullness. The fullness of Christ is my safeguard against freedom, uh, against seduction. He is the trustworthy guide. And then finally, let's talk about a triumphant life to live. What is it that Jesus does in us when he fills us 
with himself. Now, this is a rather dense section of Scripture, and there's parts of it which are difficult to understand, and this is not the time or place to go into a detailed analysis of all of that. And to be perfectly honest with you, there are aspects of this which commentators still don't quite, uh, haven't quite come to uh, full agreement on what they, they all mean. It would make sense that if the Bible is the divinely inspired Word of God, there would be parts of it that are a little bigger for our little minds to fill, right? That would make sense, so that doesn't bother me at all. But I want to summarize it basically this way. Uh, we, Jesus gives us a triumphant life to live. See, the main point here is that Jesus comes in, fills us with himself, and then teaches us how to live his way, the human way that he created us to live. And so there are two things I want you to note here as we look at this section. Number one, in Jesus, our old life died and our new life began. In Jesus, our old life died and our new life began. See, the key idea is this. As we place our faith in Christ, his death and resurrection are ours. Our old life died and our new life began. He describes that in verses 11 and 12. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in a baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. You see, it speaks about the dying of our old life, the putting off of the body of flesh, buried with him, in which also you were raised with him. So while we might not know what all those words exactly are pointing to, we can see the general sense that in Jesus there is a death which we died and there is a life which we live. You see, there was a dying and a rising again, which has happened to us. Yeah, here it speaks about the circumcision, which puts off the body of flesh. And as Jesus' body was stripped away from him on the cross, so too Jesus' life was died. And when we trust in Christ, his death becomes our death. We have a spiritual circumcision as we participate by faith in Jesus' death on the cross. As Jesus' body died, so our old lives die with his death. Spiritually, the old man dies with Jesus. And this idea is repeating the idea of baptism in verse 12, that we are buried with him in baptism so that we are raised with him in life. The power of our fleshly old self goes under the water. It dies, is rendered powerless, another passage of Scripture says, and we then no longer have to live by the dictates of the old man, the old self. We don't have to be that guy anymore. We have been set free. The reality is we have, we actually died with Christ. I am crucified with Christ, Galatians 2 says. Nevertheless, I live, yet Christ lives in me. In the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me somehow in some mysterious way. That's why we sang the beautiful scandalous cross this morning. The mystery of all that, that somehow Jesus' death put to death your compulsion to live an evil way. Put to death your compulsion to act in your own self-interests all the time. You see, we don't have to serve our selfish, sinful impulses. They have no power over us. We can lead a rich, full life. Jesus, Paul says to these people, do you know what happened? You trusted in Jesus. 
You no longer had to live that way. That's gone. And what comes now is a new life. You see, death is not the end of the story. As Jesus was raised to new life, so we too are ways raised to a new life. Yes, someday there will be a bodily resurrection down the future. But today, we receive resurrection power today. The Holy Spirit is our down payment on that. We have the fullness of Christ in us. We can become the loving, forgiving, compassionate, good people that we really want to be. We simply must reckon on it. As Romans 6 tells us, it's available to us now. We can set our accounts. We live accordingly with that. You know, one of the things that we're able to do occasionally is we're able to transfer monies from our accounts to our kids' accounts. You ever done that? Hopefully not too often. Some of you say, yeah, way too often, right? And that money shows up there, and the child generally has no compunction about just spending it. It's, it's there, Right? It's my money now. It's my parents put it in there. It's right there in my account. I thought I was out of it, and there it is. Well, that's what Jesus has done for us. He has credited his righteousness to our account. There are plenty resources we have right now there in our account, but too many of us are only balancing our own little checkbook and only thinking about the strength that we have, not realizing what God has credited to our account to give us new life. You see, a deposit has been made. Will I live in line with it or not? Daily, I must take into account that I have a new life. I have been made a living witness of God's new creation in Christ Jesus. I can choose to live that way. I don't need to follow those old masters anymore. The salvation that Jesus offers me is not purely a head commitment that I make that denounces my bodily self. No, my body has been redeemed, and he wants to renew my passions, turn lust back into love. You see, turn these good God-given appetites into the good God-given may way they are meant to be spent. Yes, in Jesus, we have been brought from death to life. Our old life died, and a new life began. And then finally, number two, in Jesus, our old bondage was broken, and our new freedom began. Our old bondage was broken, and our new freedom began. Verses 13 to 15, I love that 13th verse. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. God has made me alive. I have a new life. I want to live according to that life. You know, there are three kinds of bondages that are referred to, and I only can mention them briefly. There's the bondage to death. There's the bondage to guilt. And there's the bondage to demonic forces. First of all, we have been delivered from the bondage to death. Verse 13. And you were dead in your trespasses, and God made you alive having forgiven you from all your trespasses. You see, we were dead, but God made us alive. We can't make ourselves alive. God must bring it to us that fundamentally the Christian of faith is a rescue religion. It's about something God has done for us, which we simply respond to by faith. Because of Jesus, then, we are set free from the bondage, from the fear of death. 
Because of Jesus, I no longer need to fear death. Number two, we've been delivered from the guilt of sin. Verse 14, canceling the record of debt. It starts in the verse 14. Paul didn't write in, in 13. Paul didn't write in the verses. You know, those were added hundreds of years later. Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against it, with, against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. The record of debt. If, they were, if you were a Jew, that record of debt was the law of God, the Torah, which they had failed to fulfill, and they were judged by it. But for the Gentiles who didn't have that law of God, there was that moral debt, the laws they knew themselves to have broken, the records that show our guilt. This is saying Jesus took those debts and nailed them to the cross above his head. A song we should sing when I was in high school, he paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my sins away. And now I sing a brand new song, Amazing Grace. Christ Jesus paid the debt that I could never pay. He paid that debt. Because of Jesus, I no longer need to fear punishment. Jesus frees me from guilt. You see, there are people today, our world is afraid of death. Jesus sets us free. That's why we have so much surgery all the time, right? afraid to look old. We don't want to look old, right? That's why we, you know, whatever. Uh, forgive me. I'm, that was wrong. <laughs> Rewind. We fear death, don't we? We don't want to think about it. We don't even say he died. We say he passed. I don't know what that means. When people say to me, well, I won't say when people say I passed something, it's not what you <laughs> because of Jesus, we no longer fear death. And because of Jesus, we no longer fear punishment. We're free from guilt. People are guilt-driven. And verse 15 tells us we have received deliverance from the domination of evil powers. And yes, I know you'd like to talk about this more, but time is up, so we can't talk about it much except to say this. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him. Demonic powers falling. These worldly systems, they no longer have to control us. And here Paul is giving a beautiful image about what would happen when Romans went off in uh, war and defeated an enemy. They would, enemy. They would have a great parade. In fact, there's a great story. I was going to read it for you, but I won't. Great story about Amelius when he conquered the Macedonians in a great three-day procession. Think of the Rose Parade. And think of this great procession, except in this parade, you have Amelius and all of his chariots going by in procession. And behind him, and this is described in Plutarch's lives, behind, it was a three-day parade. And behind him were all the weapons of the Macedonians strewn over, gangly, you know, all just shiny, but busted all over top of each other. And behind him, then all the soldiers they had captive, captured, and then the servants, and then the, uh, the children of, of the king of uh, Macedonia, and then Macedonia, the Macedonian king himself, dressed in black, ridiculed as he goes by this great parade, ridiculing. And that's what he is saying has happened. You don't have to live by the systems which are... Uh, life uh, death producing in this world yeah jesus has made a public display of evil powers and the irony of this is how did jesus do it he did it by dying on the cross think about that it was the weakness of jesus which was the strength 
On the cross, Paul declares, God was stripping the armor off the rulers and the authorities. He, Jesus, was holding them to public contempt while he died. That doesn't make any sense, does it? Except that Jesus swallowed up the power of evil and rose again victorious over it. Paul never gets tired of relishing the glorious paradox of the cross. God's weakness overcoming human strength. God's folly overcoming human wisdom. Because when we are weak, then we are strong. Jesus turns this world's value system upside down. And he is a trustworthy guide. You can count on him. A couple of things in closing. Number one. If you've never responded in faith to this Jesus, do it today. Say, Lord Jesus, I don't understand all this, but if it's true that you are God in the flesh and that you want to bring me forgiveness and release me from the fear of death and set me free from all those things that control me, I want to respond to you in faith. Do that today. Another thing is perhaps you need to believe, believe that you don't have to live the stinking way you've been living. You don't have to do it. I'm not trying to get you to be something you don't want to be. I'm trying to invite you to become what you really want to be. Let Jesus do that in you. He can. He will. He sets us free. And begin to live the new life that Jesus offers Love like he loved, give like he gave, serve like he served, touch the lives of others and bless them as he has blessed you. Freely you have received, freely you give, even lay down your life for those with whom you may have disagreements because that's what Jesus did for you. Also on that trip through the Orient, we stopped in Hong Kong and it was a very different experience for us because we had some connections to a church that we knew. We didn't know the people. We knew the people there. And they knew that we were going to be there. And so when we got off the plane, there they were meeting us. Reverend C.C. All Young and the people that he had asked to show us around. And for three or four days, we had a wonderful time. We ate in all the real Chinese restaurants where they ate. We ate stuff we didn't know what we were eating, but we just ate it because it had been provided for us. We got into taxis. We got onto buses. We never worried about a thing. Why? Because we had trustworthy guides that we knew cared about us, and they knew the lay of the land. Jesus cares about you. He knows the lay of the land. Bow before him, will you? And as we close our time, we will close with the Lord's Supper, which is that glorious moment when Jesus made a public spectacle of the powers that be by laying down his life. It's a paradox. It's the beautiful mystery of faith. Let's receive that together as we close. Lord Jesus, this morning we are grateful to know that you are the one who knows the way, and we can trust you. Help us to do so. There are some here today who very well may this be the moment when they say, okay, I get it now. I invite Jesus to be my Lord, my Savior. And there are others of us today for whom this is the moment when we say, okay, Lord, 
have your way in my life. Set me free. Make me who you want me to be. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.